0: Tonight I'd like to continue exploring the uh, the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind states, mindfulness of mind. And we've been exploring this for several days, but it it just seems to me like there's so much there and I wanted to bring in a um, a slightly different perspective which uh, I understand that Nikki introduced yesterday morning in the instruction period. And that is exploring the third foundation of mindfulness, not only as kind of exploring the obvious mind states that come up as we, as we meditate, as we meet our experience, you know, of course we're going to notice um, mind states of, of frustration or anger or, or confusion, just as we're going through the day, you know thoughts come by and we'll react to those thoughts. And, and of course, mind states come up in that way. And so we've been exploring how to work with meeting those states, exploring them, opening to them, being with them, not with the agenda to get rid of them, fix them. Change them, but more with the curiosity of what is this? What does it mean to be a human being that's experiencing this state of mind? Another way that this foundation can serve us is as an exploration not only of the kind of obvious states of mind that come and go during our day, but also in terms of exploring how we relate to experience and how we are relating to practice itself. So these kinds of mind states may be more hidden or below our, usually our, our, our level of you know our conscious awareness. It may be kind of in the background, hidden from us a little bit. And so I'd like to explore how we can use this teaching on mindfulness of mind states to begin to explore our relationship to experience. Every single experience we have, whether it's seeing a sight or hearing a sound or feeling a body sensation, there is some relationship that our mind has to that experience. Our mind has a relationship to all of the experience that comes through our physical senses and all of the experience that we have in our mind as well. We have a relationship to the experience of thinking. We have a relationship to emotions that arise. A simple example, if we're sitting here and this is an obvious one, one that you've all explored and all worked with, that if you're sitting here and feeling some kind of physical discomfort in the body, pain in the back or pain in the knee, something like that, the pain is one thing. The, the physical discomfort is one thing. It's, it's an unpleasant experience, and it's got its elemental experience of sensations, of perhaps pressure, pulsing, burning, stabbing, that kind of thing. You know just, just so there's the, the experience of the physicality of it, and then the feeling tone of it. But based on those things, those experiences, there's usually some relationship that we have to that pain. Often, there's an aversive relationship that we have to that pain. Occasionally there's a balanced relationship we have to that pain. But in any case, whether the relationship, or they're even, as I've sometimes seen in my, as I get really into, uh, the, mind, the mindfulness that can see things in detail, there can even be a greedy relationship to that pain. It's like, wow, that is so cool. Let me really dive in there and figure, look at that and see all the sparking sensations. So there can be, there can be a kind of a greedy relationship to it as well. So the, um, whatever the experience is, whether it's, uh, I mean, the, the rel- there's the experience, and then there is always some mental relationship some attitude that the mind has in relationship to that experience it may be so subtle that it's not noticed at times you know sometimes we don't particularly recognize the experience of a balanced relationship for instance you know, if we're if we're exploring um, the way sounds come and go, we may be very interested in the coming and going of the sound, but less aware that interest is arising in the mind. That there's a relationship of interest. That there's a relationship of non-reactivity. A relationship of calm, perhaps. So the the exploration I'd like to make tonight is beginning to look at what is our relationship to whatever is happening, moment to moment. We are often not consciously aware of this relationship. If we are not consciously aware of a relationship of aversion, for example, or of greed, if we are relating to experience through a relationship of aversion, and we're not clearly aware of the aversion, then there is a kind of a reinforcement of the aversion happening. And so, when we have a relationship to experience that is unseen, if it's, a, if it's an unhelpful relationship, we're tending actually to reinforce the habit of that unhelpful relationship when it's not seen. If it's a helpful relationship, like curiosity or balance of mind, and we're not consciously aware of that, we're actually missing the opportunity to strengthen it. Because mindfulness has this wonderful property that when we turn our mindful attention to states of mind that are not helpful, those states of mind that are based in greed, aversion, and delusion, those three states three of the states that are clearly highlighted in the third foundation of mindfulness when we turn our mindful attention to greed aversion and delusion we are mindful of them it creates the conditions for them to be diminishing in our experience we learn something about greed when we pay attention to it when we bring our mindfulness to greed when we bring our mindfulness to aversion we see that it actually doesn't feel so good. And that very um, mindful attention begins to help give, the, give our minds an education that greed, aversion, and delusion are not really the way to go in terms of heading towards well-being. And very fortunately, when our, when our system, our organism, gets good education, it wants to move towards well-being. It really just needs good information, And so as we begin to explore greed, aversion, and delusion in our experience, our system begins to understand very viscerally that that's not helpful. And so it begins to create the conditions for a weakening of those states. And likewise with wholesome states, helpful states of mind, states of curiosity, of kindness, of equanimity, of calm when we turn our mindful attention to those states, it creates the conditions for those to strengthen because the very mindfulness of those gives the system, gives our organism the information that these states do lead towards well-being. So mindfulness itself is a very supportive uh, aspect of our minds that begins to help us let go of states based in greed, aversion, and delusion, and to cultivate those wholesome states. And so when we are unaware that our relationship, of what our relationship is, we're either missing the opportunity to weaken the unskillful states, and we're unwittingly strengthening those unskillful states and we're losing the opportunity to strengthen the wholesome ones so another way to explore or to think about this relationship to experience is how am I with this experience my teacher Saito uses the the question, you know, what's the attitude of mind with relationship to, with respect to experience? For me, the word, what's the relationship to experience? How am I with this experience? That's a little more of a natural word in a way. Just what's the relationship to experience? And so we can actually use that question from time to time to begin to Uncover attitudes, relationships of mind that may not be so clear to us or so obvious to us. So that's a little technique or a tool that we can use just from time to time. And I would definitely say from time to time uh, rather than making this something that you... Uh, are doing kind of every few seconds. You know? So we can kind of get, make ourselves crazy with this question. But from time to time, and some good times to check this, or to ask this question, is if it feels like there's some struggle, if it feels like you're, you're kind of butting up against something or fighting with something, that's a good time to just check in. Okay, what's my relationship? What's the relationship to experience right now? What's the relationship? And then the the dropping in of the question, I, I have to be careful about this sometimes because it's not that you're trying to find an answer or figure out an answer or think about an answer. You're dropping in the question and then just continuing your practice. Often, or I'd say some some percentage of the time, there can be a kind of a, it's almost like we, we are, we're ringing a doorbell with that question. And then some, some mind state answers the door. You know, we don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to find it. So we just drop in the question and see, is there some, is there some experience? Is there some relationship that hasn't been obvious that you know just by checking in just by asking the questions sometimes those relationships can come forward offer themselves to be seen more consciously so when there's a feeling of struggle is often a good time to check this check the attitude check the relationship to experience another really helpful time to check your relationship to ex- your experience as if it feels like it's going really, really well. Because sometimes there's a little bit of leaning in, <laughs> a little bit of greed, a little bit of um, oh, I figured it out, I've got it right. You know, so so the, the again, that's a relationship that may not be noticed if we don't kind of open up and check in to ask that question. So this practice question, just from time to time, as a way to explore something that kind of may be behind the curtain, behind the, behind the scenes. Almost like sometimes we have, you know, mind states behind the show that are having us engage in our exploration of experience, but without being consciously, without our being consciously aware of them. You now, if you have a kind of an attitude of resistance while you're looking at pain, and you're not aware of that resistance, then that very resistance is informing how you are exploring the pain. It's, 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 influencing how you choose to explore that experience. When we become aware, okay, there's there's pain and there's resistance to it. At least at that point, there can be a sense of the awareness that, oh, okay, so, so there's pain and I don't like it, I res- I'm resisting it. And we can begin to see perhaps that a way that we're kind of bearing into that experience of pain or maybe pulling back from and kind of bracing ourselves around it and just see, we can just see that more clearly as we begin to open ourselves to this question. What's the relationship to experience? So, there are roughly four flavors of attitude that you might come across as you ask this question. And these connect very directly to this third foundation of mindfulness. There's the attitude of greed, of wanting something, either to continue or wanting to have something or to be someone, to, to, so that, that movement towards, there's that, that movement towards the wanting, the greed. There's the attitude of aversion, of not liking, of wanting to get rid of, wanting to pull myself away from it or to actively push that thing away from me. There's the attitude of delusion, Often experienced as a disconnection or a non not knowing. And then there's the attitude that I'll call balance of mind. There's the relationship of it's okay, the relationship of no problem this is in the terrain of equanimity, the, the beautiful quality of equanimity. And so the relationship to experience having these one of these four flavors, it's like this to me is, when we look at that first half of the Satipatthana, uh, the third foundation um, Satipatthana, it talks about looking at the presence or absence of greed Presence or absence of aversion. Presence or absence of delusion. And then contraction and distraction. Contraction and distraction I actually think of as flavors of delusion in a way. They're flavors of delusion. And so noticing the presence of greed, aversion, and delusion, contraction, distraction, which are flavors of delusion, and then the absence of those which is essentially balance of mind. When greed, aversion, and delusion are not present, the mind is not reactive. It's not doing a push-pull dance with what we're experiencing. It's okay with what's happening. So I'd like to explore these flavors a little bit and talk a little bit more about um, the attitude in general. So greed, exploring greed. You're all familiar with greed. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a common one that we begin to see as we look at our experience. It's got obvious flavors. Um, that, you know, of the really wanting, a feeling of neediness, a feeling of, of have to have, kind of a, 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 just that, that sticky pull towards some either sense pl- sense pleasure or some um, state of mind. We can, we can crave states of mind. We can want and have um, greed about states of mind. We can have uh, wanting about being seen, being mirrored, being heard. Wanting to be seen in a particular way. So, all of these things we're familiar with, the kind of obvious forms of wanting. Some more subtle forms of this flavor of attitude might be things like expectation or excitement. Or even possibly amusement. You know, subtler kinds of leaning towards uh, leaning towards something that's delightful or pleasant. Now one of the really important explorations with the exploring states of mind is to recognize and remember, 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 remember that when we see a state of greed, something subtle, like expectation or amusement in particular, you know, it's like... It's not that we're somehow trying to stop it or get rid of it. We're bringing mindfulness to it so that it can be known. You know, states, subtle, subtler states of... of um, of greed for instance like, like expectation and excitement and amusement they often have a blend with um, you know joy or curiosity you know, so there's a kind of a there's, there's a kind of a, a way in which those are beginning to move towards the wholesome states of curiosity, joy um, interest, delight and yet as you begin to explore just bring mindfulness you know it's like some of you have talked in the meetings about feeling excitement as you as you begin to recognize you know what's going on in there you know it's pretty cool sometimes to start to see things that are going on in there and be and be able to you know be okay about it to be non-reactive about seeing some of the stuff that's going on and it can bring some dharma joy And that Dharma joy can kind of shoot into excitement, sometimes into uh, restlessness of mental proliferation, you know, of, oh, wow, that's so cool. Wow, I'm never going to have to worry about that one again. I figured that one out. And so the mind has kind of moved from just the, the kind of the rising of the joy into a little bit of restlessness around it, a little bit of leaning towards it. And so this is It's not something to say, oh, excitement bad, you know, like just cut it out, try to excise it, but to be aware of it. As we open to, oh, what's the attitude here? Excitement's the attitude. Opening to that, you might begin to feel kind of the rising of joy and the kind of purity of joy, but also feel some kind of, ooh, a little bit of shakiness or agitation around that joy, which excitement has a slightly agitated quality to it. It's like, Ugh. and that part is extra. It's got a little bit of the leaning to it, a little bit. But we're not going to understand which part, which aspect or which part of the experience around you know the dharma joy and the excitement that follows from it we're not going to understand which part of it is is the beautiful the wholesome the dharma joy side and which part of it is the a uh, little bit of agitation side without just opening to it oh there's this this recognition of understanding and excitement is happening Excitement is happening. The mindfulness is the... The mindfulness and the interest together, really, I think. The the curiosity about what's it like to be a human being feeling excitement. The mindfulness begins to help us tease apart which aspects of it have a little bit of that gripping and which parts of it are the wholesome... So the leaning in, trying to... Th- and a subtler form is is kind of... subtler form of the wanting is a leaning in, a trying, perhaps, to make something continue. A wanting it to continue. Just a subtle, like, Oh, mm, mm, what's that? The subtlest kind of leaning in. So in my own practice, I have seen all of these flavors. And... Again, to just emphasize that the learning comes with curiosity and opening to these flavors, not kind of labeling them as, oh, leaning in, it feels like I'm leaning in. You know, Andrea said that was greed, so how do I get rid of that? What I'm hoping to encourage is opening to it. Oh, leaning in, that's what's happening. What does that feel like? What is that like? So likewise with aversion there are more obvious and more subtle kinds of flavors. There's the more obvious flavors of dislike, of anger, of uh, fear, of hatred. Those more obvious forms of that quality of mind. Subtler forms might be just a state of something like discontent, dissatisfaction. It's like, it's okay, but could be better, you know. Just that subtle kind of, you know, it, it almost is not something that we recognize consciously because it it doesn't feel like it's getting in the way of being present with whatever it is, right? And yet, it's really helpful to acknowledge. Yeah, you know, it could be better. So, you know, I'm looking at this thing that's going on here, but you know, it's really kind of boring. You know, or or it's just like it's not it's not as interesting as it was yesterday, so you know, it's okay, but you know, so there's just a subtle dissatisfaction, a subtle sense of off, not as you know, not what you want it to be, you know, so it's it's not this. It's it's, it's just not what you it's got a subtle sense of a feeling of not wanting this to be what's happening. So you know a subtler flavor of that, or a, a kind of another level of subtlety around this is by paying attention to this thing, it'll go away. You know, that we can have a a sense of you know almost the interest to pay attention to it in order that this unpleasant thing go away. So again, these, these more obvious and less obvious states. Checking the attitude like this, checking the relationship to experience, can reveal kind of emotional relationship to experience. You know, like something's happening, it's like, you know, it's like an emotional storm around it. But it can also just re- reveal subtle agendas in the mind agendas around the meditation like if I pay attention to this in the right way I'll get this great state or if I pay attention in just the right way this unpleasant thing will go away. So those, those have less of an emotional quality and more of an agenda quality. So these two, these agendas can also be relationships to experience. I'd like to talk in, about delusion in a, in, a, in a moment. I'd like to cover delusion in a little bit more depth. Um, so I'm going to skip delusion for a moment and come back to um, the fourth kind of attitude, this balance of mind, the relationship of balance of mind. So sometimes when we check in, you know, what's my relationship to experience? You know, it doesn't feel like there's much there. This might be, you know, this might be because there's just very subtle kinds of greed or aversion happening, or very subtle kinds of delusion. But, you know, you're present, it doesn't seem like there's much going on. Um, and so, you know, if, if it feels like there's not much of a kind of nobody answers the door when you ring the doorbell, if it feels like nobody answers the door, then don't go looking for anything. You know, it might just be that it's a little more subtle than um than you're familiar with. Or actually it, it could also be that you're not familiar with checking in and recognizing calm is what's happening right now. You know, calm is a pretty subtle state. Peace is a pretty subtle state. And so sometimes you know you check in, it's like, oh nothing seems to be happening. You could try that on. You could just say, well is it calm? Is it peace? Is it okayness? Is it no problem? This flavor of balance of mind, as a as an attitude, has a lot of different possible manifestations. A lot of different possible uh, ways that it might be experienced. Calmness, peace, a sense of I don't mind this. One of my uh, dear uh, friends, who had a she she died a few years ago, um, but she had a really deep practice. I learned so much from her, and just talking to her about her practice, and she 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 said she was recognizing it is the subtle difference in this balance of mind, shading into aversion. She said, if my mind's going, I don't care, it's got a little bit of aversion. If it's saying, I don't mind this, that's more equanimity. That's that balance of mind. So, that you know, checking into the attitude, if it's like an I don't care kind of attitude there may be just a little bit of aversion there so it's got these flavors of i don't mind this calm peace it can also manifest as a as heart qualities philip this morning mentioned loving attention it can have a, a feeling of love of of compassion sometimes, of friendliness to experience. And so sometimes checking in to, uh, to our relationship, it might just feel like it's friendly or loving or compassionate. It might have a flavor of delight, of curiosity, of interest. It's just subtly different ways that we experience these states. Might be a feeling of gratitude or it might just have more of the sense of of equanimity, of tranquility, or happiness. So, so many different flavors when the mind is non-reactive and opening to those flavors will support their nourishment. So actually recognizing, yeah, happiness is here. This is the human experience of happiness is supportive for our movement towards freedom. So, I'd like to come back and explore delusion a little bit. Often when we explore this foundation of mindfulness and talk about delusion... People say, but how do you see delusion? Is it even possible to see delusion? And uh, it is possible to see delusion. It's possible to know delusion. It's possible to know it's operating in our minds. And so what I'd like to do right now is to just to take a little bit of time to give you some information about how, some ways that delusion functions, which may help you Begin to see it. As we begin to see delusion, you know what. Some, sometimes what happens is we begin to see um, delusion. Often functions like a a veil of some kind. You know, it's it's we're we're seeing through a veil, and sometimes that veil is so cloudy that it feels just like we're just disconnected. Like we're not even connecting with experience. This is, this is what I'll call the first level or layer of delusion. A, f- a flavor of um, lack of awareness. You know, just the, the non-mindful state is a state of delusion. A state when we're lost in thought is a state of delusion. And so we can begin to um, get familiar with this. Like we cannot know what it's like to not be mindful. We can't, we can't know what it's like in the moment of not being mindful to know non-mindfulness. But in the moment when mindfulness returns, we can be curious about what that's like right there. In that moment when mindfulness returns, at least in my experience, when I've been really lost, like you know, if I've been lost in some unreal, like my mind has been in some constructed reality, you know, it's been lost in that world, as the mindfulness returns, it's like there's a lingering memory of what it was like to be lost. And so we can begin to explore some of these disconnected states by being curious when we, when mindfulness returns, being curious about what's here. When mindfulness returns, mindfulness can begin to connect with certain states that we think are inherently non mindful. So this is another piece I like to to point out because there's a, a, a sometimes we have like like the state of spacing out, you know, the state of um, Sleepiness, dullness, falling asleep, often we think, you know, just not possible to be mindful there. But we can begin to um, be curious about those states, often in the moment when we're kind of waking up into being lost, being spaced out. I'll tell. I'll give an example of this. It sometimes a little help more helpful to 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 tell the story. So, um, I was exploring. Um, I was having breakfast one morning, and I was uh, trying to be mindful of eating breakfast. Trying to pay attention to all of the eating, all of the movements. Eat, you know, just trying to be particularly mindful of the physical sensations. And I kept noticing, you know. I would be doing that, and then suddenly I'd be spaced out. And I would bring myself back to being mindful of the eating and all of that, and, and then at some point I'd be spaced out again. And um, I would just recognize, it's like, okay, I wake up, it's like, oh, that's, okay, spaced out. But I would keep bringing myself back. And then at some point I recognized, because I was trying so hard to stay with the experience of being with the eating, at some point i kind of noticed when the the mindfulness kind of it's almost like it said enough of this i'm going to i'm going to go someplace else so so there was kind of a sense of seeing the mindfulness leaving paying attention to all the physical sensations and rather than at that point saying i've got the agenda i know what i'm supposed to be doing pay attention to those physical sensations i explored oh, okay i'm seeing the Mindfulness let go of that. Let's see where it goes. And at that point, I could watch the mind move into a state of spacing out, which felt like it was like hovering up above my head, a little to the right, hanging out up here. And I just stayed with it. Mindful in that state. And in being mindful in that state there was a recognition, not so much a verbal recognition, but there was just this knowing that, oh, the mind is tired. It's needing rest. And it's taking its rest in this state of spacing out. I could do that mindfully. I could be present for that mindfully. So, and then the the next surprise was that within, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 seconds... That spacing out just kind of, it's like the mist cleared. And then I was present for my body and present for seeing and present for chewing. And so it's like in some ways I had been fighting that spacing out because I had some other agenda, right? I had an agenda of what I needed to be, thought I needed to be doing. And when I allowed, or got curious about the state of spacing out itself, I discovered that spacing out is not inherently non-mindful. There's many, many states of mind which we have a habit of not being mindful in. But we can begin to be curious about it. I've actually, at this point, you know, if there's any state that I think... Not possible for mindfulness to go there, you know, some state of confusion or state of cloudiness or low energy or dullness, and my mind is telling me, can't be mindful right now. It's like, I just don't believe that thought anymore. I just get curious. Okay. Just see. Is it it possible for mindfulness to infuse that too? So this kind of obvious level or this gross level of delusion of states in which we're habitually non-mindful, just being curious about the possibility of beginning to wake up in those states. Another level or layer of delusion, so that first layer is kind of a disconnected layer. That's that's what is the most obvious way that delusion manifests. We're just not attending to what's happening. At another level down of delusion or a more kind of subtle level of delusion, we are knowing what's happening. We do know what's happening in our experience, but we are we know it through some kind of a filter, some kind of a perspective and so that perspective influences how we take information in, in the world. A, s- um, you know, a simple example of this, um, if we have some kind of an agenda to do something, to look at something, um, to find something, you know, we we um, are... are our mind, the way the mind works, it, it's like when, I, when we get a project in mind, we have some kind of an agenda, when we get a project in mind, um, the mind kind of organizes around that project and begins selecting things out of the environment that are useful to that project and ignoring things that are not useful to that project. This is called selective attention in psychological terms. And it's a very useful function of mind. It allows us to focus on things and tune things out. When I was a kid, I had a very strong capacity for this. I would be reading a book in, in, in the living room. You know, I'd be reading a book in, in the living room. And I was you know completely into that book. That was my, that was my world. And my, my dad would come up the stairs and say, hey, it's time for dinner. I would not hear him. I just did not hear him. He actually had to come up to me and touch me to get me to kind of come out of my selective attention. So, you know, sometimes we, we have that. We have this, this capacity to kind of come in and, and with, based on an agenda, based on something that we're doing, screen certain things in and other things out. So this is, you know, this is a, a useful function of mind. And yet, you know, the, the, um, the place this shades into delusion is that we think in some way that our minds are kind of natural, you know, like, like our eyes are cameras and our ears are microphones and that they just record everything and that we're seeing the world out there as it is. You know, that we're seeing what's what's actually going on out there. But when we see the world, we are seeing certain things and not other things based on perspectives. And when we're not aware of those perspectives, we mistakenly think we're seeing things accurately. So this is, you know, this is just the way our minds work. But we, we need to begin to recognize when we have agendas. You know, even a simple agenda. You know, many of you have probably heard the story, the 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 study about um the uh, um, basketball and the gorilla. <laughs> I'll just briefly review it for those of you who haven't heard it. It was a study where people were asked to watch a videotape and to count the number of times a basketball passed between players in the white t-shirts. And, you know, during that video, uh, a guy in a gorilla suit kind of walked across the stage, walked across the basketball players, and, you know, stood there for a while. It wasn't like he was hiding, you know, standing there, this gorilla, gorilla suit, and then walked off. And um, after the tape was played, after the tape was played, the pretty uniformly people could say how many times the basketball passed accurately, give that answer. Um, A good, I don't know, I think about 60% of the people did not see the gorilla. There were a few people that were like, wow, was there a gorilla in that video? What was that? And, um, and so, you know, the, the, a lot of people just did not see the gorilla. Now, that's not a problem right there. That, that part is not a problem because that's the way our minds work. Certain people's minds can really focus in and really take in, okay, this is the agenda. Count the number of basketballs passed. That's what we're doing. The other information is not taken in. The place where delusion comes in is that in that study, when people were told there was a gorilla and shown the video, you can't not see the gorilla when you're looking for the gorilla, they denied that it was the same video. You know, that some number of people were so convinced that there could not have been, that gorilla could not have been in the video they saw because they would have seen it. This is delusion. This is the danger of the way we think we're seeing things accurately. This happens all the time, this kind of thing. So that's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty subtle form of delusion. This kind of thing also happens, you know, culturally. We're told something Over and over again, we begin to believe it. America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can achieve their dream. We start to believe that. This leads to, for those people in more privileged positions, basically not seeing that There are cultural conditions that support some to achieve their dream and don't support others to achieve their dreams. Actually get actively in the way of others achieving their dreams. That delusion of white privilege... So again, you know, it's this perspective we're holding and not seeing basically that the the system is rigged. We can also create views based on incomplete information. Now the, I was thinking this morning around or this afternoon around this, you know, an example around this, and I thought, you know, every single one of us standing on this planet, you know, it sure feels like we're standing still. (laughs) You know, it sure looks like the sun is moving across the sky. It sure looks like the moon is rising and setting. It doesn't feel like we're hurtling some, you know, I don't even know the number, Massive number of miles an hour around the axis of the earth, and besides that, hurtling through space, it's like that's not our experience, right? And it sure feels like we're sitting still. And this experience of feeling like, I mean, we know we're not sitting still, and sometimes I can even play with that, like when I watch the sunrise or the moon rise, and, and know that it's the earth that's turning. But you know, that, but it, it's kind of, we have to play with it. We have to bring in the information we know. We are operating on this planet with the, if, if we just operate with our physical senses, the feeling is that we're, the earth is still. Everything else is moving around us. So that's incomplete information. And people were, you know, Galileo, when he said, no, you know, the earth is moving. The earth is moving really fast. <laughs> you know, the, the, the church said this is heresy and put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. This perspective of, you know, incomplete information has an impact on how we relate to each other. And again, this kind of thing happens all the time. So delusion is like shot through our day. Now, don't despair. <laughs> um, we can st- we can start to um, recognize. I mean, I think the first place to begin a lot of what I'm talking about here is views. You know, it's perspective. There's views that we have. And we can begin to recognize, okay, there's a view happening here. Some views are harder, like, you know, the view of the planet is still, just the feeling of the, the truth of that is, is much harder to see through when the information is not available. And yet many of the views we do function with we can begin to recognize the views in particular that we function with interpersonally and, in, and within our own being. You know, the, when there's something happening in your experience and there's some kind of struggle, often there's some kind of you happening there. The question I like there is, what's being believed right now? these beliefs, views are often not so obvious. But we can begin to be curious about what views we have. So that question, what is being believed right now, can begin to infiltrate this. The third most fundamental kind of delusion is another form of view, a deepest level of delusion. And it's 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 kind of it's not so much the views that we deal with based on our culture or our families or just how we've navigated the world, you know, those views that we uh, deal with, you know, the, the agendas and views that we live with in our daily life, but they're kind of human views that we share partly because of the way our mind and bodies are put together we tend to have views we tend to misunderstand experience as being permanent when it's impermanent we misunderstand it as being reliable when it's unreliable. We take what is impermanent to be permanent. We take what's unreliable to be reliable. We take what is not self to be self. This is a whole Dharma talk itself. This exploration of delusion. But we can begin being curious. Again, not trying to somehow skip over or Tell ourselves, okay, you know, I'm taking this to be permanent. I'm feeling like this thing is really solid, and I know it's impermanent. But, but rather investigating when it feels like something is really stable, when it feels like something's really rock solid, just begin to explore. What's the solidity there? Is it really solid? How does it feel solid? So, curiosity about that. And likewise with what we think is reliable, where we think, yeah, that's where I'm going to be happy. That's what's going to make me happy. And noticing the feeling of, yeah, that, what is it that we think is reliable about that? In general, this sense pleasure, this worldly, worldly pleasant that we've been talking about, you know, it is so unreliable. And yet that's where we think we're going to find happiness. And so just investigating that one of the the, um, explorations, which Nikki touched into the other day, is this exploration of gratification, danger, and escape. When there's pleasant experience. It's like, how is this feeling gratifying? And then what the Buddha instructs here is, how long does it last? How far does that gratification extend? So that we begin to be very consciously aware that that thing that we think is going to do it for us. And on retreat, you know, we really can see this. I, I've On retreat, I've actually recognized that the mind really believes that this piece of chocolate is going to do it for me. It's going to make me happy, you know, and it does for a moment, for 30 seconds. Actually, it lasts way longer than I thought, the happiness of chocolate. (laughs) It was quite impressive. (laughs) It it lasted, I don't know, a couple minutes, but it (laughs) (laughs) faded. So, so, I mean, curiosity, you know, how long does that pleasure last? I was playing with that, you know, so, okay, you know, there is that feeling of, yeah, chocolate's going to do it for me, but how long does it actually do it for you? In doing that exploration, it's like, wow, actually, I got to enjoy the chocolate for a really long time. And then it faded. And because I was there for it, there wasn't the sense of needing to grasp after another piece of chocolate. Trying to find the next thing. And then seeing what is not self is self. I'm sure we'll talk about this more as the retreat goes on. But just beginning to explore, you know, it's not so helpful to try to put on the identity of not self. We do that sometimes. What's much more interesting is to begin to look at what am I taking to be self? And sometimes this is really obvious. You know, sometimes these senses of self really come up quickly, obviously. And when that happens, you can just say, like, oh, take that in. Oh, here's the argumentative self. That lasts for a while. Here's the frustrated self. That lasts for a while. Here's the interested self. That lasts for a while. And beginning to just see this changing dynamic. No solid thing there. So exploring. Exploring the identities. Exploring what is it that we are, what feels like me? So as we become aware of these kinds of delusion we can begin to notice when they're happening. You can begin to be, okay, yeah, this is I'm feeling a sense of me here. You know, it may not feel like delusion, but you know, you can know, okay, that that's something to be curious about. And then you might have a moment or a few moments where suddenly the sense of impermanence is so clear or the sense of the way that you had been holding on to something as reliable is suddenly so clear. And and suddenly it's like you see just really directly there's nothing that's reliable in the way that I thought it was. Everything's just slipping through And there's a moment where it's just so clear. It is so clear, and it feels so obvious. Wow, there's nothing to hold on to. And then a few moments later, we're holding on again. Delusion is back. We, in exploring this, we have moments when delusion falls away, and we see something clearly. But that's conditioned. That, that's an insight and it's conditioned and it's impermanent too. It will, the conditions for the obscuring to be back and yet, because you've seen it otherwise, because you've seen what it's like to not have that particular delusion, it's like then you can really clearly know, ah yes, this is delusion. Delusion. The absence of delusion highlights delusion when it's present again. The trick there is to not feel like you failed when delusion comes back. It's not a failure. It is simply the conditions. So, noticing greed, aversion, delusion... Noticing the balance of mind. Checking the attitude. This is a direct pointing to what the Buddha said is freedom. He said freedom. Nibbana. One of the clearest definitions he said was the absence of greed. The absence of aversion. The absence of delusion. And so this practice is helping to reveal greed, aversion, and delusion that we kind of below the radar. It's good news to have it revealed. Because when it's below the radar, it's kind of reinforcing itself. When it comes into consciousness, there's a possibility for transformation and release and freedom even small tastes of that letting go, can be really freeing. So, I've talked too long, so I'm going to thank you at this point for your attention, and remind you that the chanting, is happening. There's about mm, 22 minutes to walk, stretch your legs, and I'd encourage you to come back for the chanting this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit